Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Climate Justice Deal podcast, where we will be interviewing researchers and heterodox economists from South Africa and around the world on issues pertaining to climate from the perspective of their particular fields. My name is Awande Butelezi and I am a researcher and organizer at the Cooperative and Policy Alternative Center and an activist with the Climate Justice Charter Movement. I am also the research coordinator of the Climate Justice Deal, which will take the principles, perspectives and alternatives introduced in the Climate Justice Charter and give them macroeconomic form. Today, we are joined by Brazilian economist Alfredo Saad-Fio, who is a professor of political economy and international development in the Department of International Development at King's College London. His writings range across critiques of the post-Washington Consensus and the Washington Consensus, International Monetary Fund, World Bank policies, and pro-poor policy alternatives. They also include concrete analysis of fiscal, monetary, financial, balance of payments, and employment policies, as well as inflation targeting resource use, including resource curse and dust disease, and policy making in Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, especially Brazil and the Middle East. In this interview, I asked Alfredo questions regarding his policy brief paper for a just and democratic development approach to macroeconomic policy to advance the deep trust transition. A shorter copy of this paper should be up and available on the Emancipatory Future Studies blog space. A link for that will be put in the description of this episode. And now to our interview. This paper is broken down into five different sections, and we will go sequentially through these sections to get the whole argument of this just and democratic development approach to macroeconomic policy to advance the deep just transition. We'll begin with capitalism and the climate, extraction, exploitation, and exhaustion. In your paper, you state, and in this section rather, that emissions of greenhouse gases change the climate in ways that are diffuse, gradual, cumulative and global. This places severe constraints on the possibility of limiting climate change and mitigating its impact and on the modalities of doing so. These challenges are closely related with four sources of stress in the contemporary global economy. What are these four uh, sources of stress in the global contemporary economy? The paper identifies four main sources of stress uh, in the economy. The first is um, the contradiction between capitalism uh, itself uh, and uh, climate uh, stability and climate. The underlying problem is this. A system that is based on individual profit maximization is not compatible with a stable climate for different species to continue to survive. Because each capitalist has an incentive to generate as much profit for themselves as possible because they appropriate those profits and to spew uh, as much uh, garbage into the atmosphere as they want to, because that costs them nothing. Those costs are not internalized. Now, this creates a dynamic uh, that when the system is small, when the global economy is small, we're talking 19th century, we're talking early 20th century, that was tolerable. The earth could comfortably absorb those emissions. Today, it cannot. 
and the accumulated emissions have already destabilized the Earth's climate beyond what the Earth can take. Now, the response from capital has been, oh, we can't do anything about it, or it has been to deny that there is a problem. No, 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 there is no problem. There is no climate change. Everyone knows that there is climate change. Everyone knows we have to confront the problem. We need, we need to confront it right now. The cost is simply too high. But this is a contradiction that is within the system itself. That's the first source of tension that the paper identifies. Uh, the second uh, source of tension is that we know that there is a problem. We know, we realize, we have known, science has known and industry has known that um, excessive carbon emissions uh, will destabilize the climate inevitably. Industry has known that and science, science has known that for over 70 years. Still they hid it. This is exactly the same as what the tobacco industry did, knowing full well that smoking is harmful, smoking uh, leads to any number of illnesses, including cancer. The uh, oil industry knew and governments knew that uh, carbon emissions would destabilize the climate. They hid it. They hid this piece of information because it was inconvenient, it was undesirable, it would uh, create difficulties with the uh, profit uh, models of extremely powerful uh, industries, and it would create confusion for states that relied on oil uh, exports for their prosperity. So they hit it. That is uh, another problem. We need to confront the truth, and we need to accept that the truth had been known for several decades, and nothing was done to address it. Third tension is that Western economies prospered on the basis of the internal combustion engine. They prospered on the basis of spewing noxious gases into the atmosphere, and uh, they prospered on the, base, on the basis of simply releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to finance uh, and to support their uh, economic growth. That has destabilized the climate already. So what options are available for poor countries? If you're coming behind, you have to deal with the consequences of all the uh, dirt created by those countries that were ahead of you. This is a problem because now you need to redistribute the costs of transition. Now you need to stop emitting carbon dioxide. Who is going to bear the burden? Now, from the point of view of the advanced economies, the rich countries in the West in particular, they would turn to the poor countries in the South and say, oh, look, I'm sorry, you lost a chance because in the past you could uh, release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Now you can no longer do that you have to change your growth model. And the poor economies in the global south respond, hey, hold on there, you created this problem. We are still growing, we are poor, we need the space uh, to uh, develop new technologies. So we need you to bring us the facilities uh, that will allow us to change uh, and to adapt to this new future. But in the meantime, you stop your emissions first. Western economies don't like that. But that is, creates friction between different countries that we see in every single um, uh, diplomatic uh, conclave uh, in the world. Um, the fourth sort of source of tension that is identified in this paper is that several uh, countries, as is well known, depend very heavily uh, on the production and export uh, of uh, oil, gas, coal, uh, and um, other uh, products that uh, lead to carbon emissions and other forms of uh, pollution. 
Now, this is one particular problem for countries like Canada and Norway that are relatively rich uh, and that could address the problem of uh, extraction of oil and gas. Uh, with, it's within the bounds of possibility for those countries. It is a very different problem for uh, uh, very poor developing countries that have um, sometimes only one viable exportable good, and that may be oil or it may be gas, uh, for example. Uh, that these problems are completely different and they have to be uh, addressed by uh, the global economy. Now, if you want to reduce the production, the export, the trading, uh, and the use of fossil fuels, you have to address these fundamental inequalities, these fundamental sources of tension, these fundamental sources of disequilibria uh, in the global economy. If we don't do that, we will not be able to address the problem. Next issue that is addressed in the paper then is how do we address those difficulties uh, in the world economy? But that is a slightly separate story. So moving on to that next issue, as you spoke about how do we address that, um, in your next session section entitled The Imperative of Change, you write that the global north with one-sixth of the world's population is the source of almost two-thirds of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And consequently, the effective action to address climate change relies primarily on the north. In these countries, action can focus on three main areas, you say, the reduction of consumption, either by cuts in disposable income or by a shift in preferences from production to leisure, the transformation in production, finance and consumption to reduce the environmental damage per dollar of income and changing the energy mix from fossil fuels to renewables. And that there is no question that achieving wholesale decarbonization will be challenging. I would like to just then expand on this and ask what are the differences then in the difficulty of achieving this wholesale decarbonization in the North, as you've indicated, versus the Global South? The challenges are very different. Um, the advanced economies, the rich economies uh, in the West, they have got the economic resources, they have got the technologies, they have got the capacities to change their energy matrix. They could do this. They could do this while generating pros economic prosperity at the same time, while creating jobs at the same time. Uh, and they could retrofit their uh, their economies that could retrofit their housing stock, they could change uh, the um, um, mass of automobiles and vans and, 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 and lorries and buses uh, in those uh, countries. They can change uh, shipping and airplanes and trains. They can change their agriculture. They can make those changes. They can finance them. It will imply some costs of transition, but these are absolutely tolerable for those economies. And coming out of the uh, pandemic uh, of 2020, it is very clear that economic resources exist. They can mo be mobilized to keep the economy going. The challenge of climate change is more uh, dramatic even than the pandemic that we have just experienced and we are still suffering uh, its consequences. It's a similar challenge in the sense that it requires mobilization of will and mobilization of resources. The challenge uh, for the advanced economies is that, and it can be confronted. There are economic resources and other resources available for that. For the developing countries, it is very different. In particular, it is different for developing countries that are net oil uh, or gas or coal exporters. For those countries, the challenge is dramatic because they tend to often 
be relatively poor, they will suffer from the ravages of climate change, the consequences of climate change, and they know that they must diversify their export base because the global oil market, gas market, coal market, those markets will collapse. Those markets will collapse because the entire world must join in the energy transition. So if your country, uh, whatever it may be, relies heavily on the export of fossil fuels, you know that you have got two problems. The first problem is how do you come out of a market that will simply cease to exist because the world must stop um, extracting and consuming fossil fuels? The second problem is how do you address the consequences of climate change that will be worldwide but in your own territory? And these two problems re uh, require resources to be addressed. They require technologies to be addressed. They require an enormous amount of dedication uh, to be addressed. And many uh, developing countries simply do not have those resources to be deployed in the time that we have got uh, available. So the challenges are very, very uh, different. And the only way to address those challenges is in a globally coordinated way. And the only way to address those challenges is through resource transfers and technology transfers from the advanced economies in the West to the global South. If we do not treat climate change as a global problem, we will not treat it at all. And then we will simply suffer the consequences and create an even more unequal world, if not a world that is completely incompatible with forms of life that we can recognize. This is the challenge that we have got. We need to address a global problem with global measures. And if the advanced countries in the West, the rich countries in the West persist in their policy of selfishness, persist in their policy of trying to maintain their standards of living based on the consumption of oil and products derived from oil, if they persist with a policy of trying to externalize costs as much as possible, it will be impossible to address uh, the challenges of climate change. Impossible. You cannot expect the poor countries, the developing countries to do this, to take the lead on this. They haven't got the resources or the technology. You must put the burden onto the um, rich countries, the rich economies in the West to lead the way. They must do this and they must do this right now. So in this paper, you suggest a set of strategies for a just and democratic transition um, to take the lead from what you're saying now about putting the burden on these countries, but also the strategies that are available to us today to make this necessary transition. Uh, and in this, in this section of the paper, you outline the principles for a deep and just democratic strategy and for the selection of just and democratic development policies. You suggest that they respond to the imperative of sustainability democracy, equality and social justice and inclusion, drawing upon the Climate Justice Charter that they are mutually reinforcing and they can support the Climate Justice Charter's ambition to build a society inspired by just and democratic values instead of environmentally destructive acquisitiveness. So what are the justifications for these deep and just democratic strategies and in what ways do they offer an alternative to mainstream perspectives? First thing we have to recognize is that capitalism is incredibly destabilizing um, for the Earth's uh, climate. But we also live um, and have lived for the past 
almost half a century, in a specific phase or configuration or mode of existence of capitalism, which is neoliberalism. Now, neoliberalism um, is incompatible with um, social protection, with uh, citizenship, with um, distribution. Neoliberalism fragments society and it creates inequality wherever it touches. We are now living with the consequences uh, in terms of the climate, not only the consequences of capitalism, but the consequences of neoliberalism itself. One of the fundamental insights in this uh, paper, one of the fundamental proposals, is that, it is, is that it is not possible to address the challenges of climate change while remaining within neoliberalism because climate change is a global problem that needs global solutions that have to be addressed by the citizens as a whole. Everyone must be part uh, of the solution. Neoliberalism is about fragmentation and the creation of inequalities. These things are not compatible. Neoliberalism is about concentration of income, concentration of wealth, concentration of power uh, among the rich in each country and within the rich countries as opposed to the majority uh, of the earth. So, Within neoliberalism, there is no solution to the climate uh, uh, problem. There is no solution to the environmental crisis. We need to transcend neoliberalism to be able to find solutions and to be able to find legitimacy for the sacrifices that will be necessary for the uh, green transition. The principles that are outlined in the Climate Justice Charter are precisely those principles. We need to create justice in the world now in order to buy support, to gain support, to deserve support for strategies uh, of transition in terms of technologies, in terms of energy base, uh, in terms of uh, the products that will be manufactured and consumed into the future of humanity. That is, if we want to have a future. From the point of view of the neoliberals, in the developing countries and in the rich countries too, they feel that they can protect themselves from climate change. They are rich enough and powerful enough that they can live and protect themselves. The vast majority of the population cannot. There's no doubt about that. So it is very important to build uh, unity, to build some vast consensus in the rich countries and in the poor countries and among the poor countries, that climate change will affect the poor more than the rich. It's not that the rich will escape, but they feel that they can escape and that's why they don't care so much. But we need to build unity among the poor across the earth and between the poor countries that will suffer the most in order to create the momentum for technological change, for shifting the energy base, uh, of humanity. This is what we have to do. So what the Climate uh, Justice Charter does is to point to general principles that society can live by in order to support uh, and underpin this transition. And what my paper is doing is to offer specific macroeconomic policies that can operationalize those principles and those ideas and lead towards a stable uh, climate uh, transition that will sustain forms of life on earth, but it will also sustain uh, more democratic economies, more equal economies at the levels of income, wealth, uh, and power. And the fundamental insight here is that those two things must go together. 
Neoliberalism will not resolve the problem of the climate transition, of the problem of the environmental crisis. In order to do this, you need to redistribute uh, income, wealth, and power. And this will require changes in technologies and changes in modes of living that only the vast majority can make happen. So we need political mobilization, we need policy change, and those two things must come together. That is the drift, uh, and that is the connection, the fundamental connection between the Climate Justice Charter and this paper that focuses on macroeconomic policies that can make those ideals happen in the world in which we live. Well, to focus on that connection between the Climate Justice Charter and this paper, and that break with uh, neoliberal thinking, as you were saying, what is the role of public policy and the selection and implementation of just and democratic policies to drive economic diversification, distribution, and a sustainable future? Public policy is absolutely uh, essential. Because one of the key problems that we have, as I mentioned before, is a problem of coordination. If you have a decentralized uh, economy, which is the case under capitalism, each individual capitalist is trying to profit and they must profit in the quickest um, time uh, possible. And in order to do this, they will generate uh, pollution and they will emit uh, carbon. They are worried about their own bottom line. Only the state can coordinate social imperatives with individual actions. Only the state has legitimacy to do this, only the state has got the power to do this. If we ignore the power of public policy, we will never find a solution uh, to uh, the climate crisis. If we ignore a public policy, there will never be legitimacy for policy change. There will never be mechanisms to compel capitalists to accumulate in particular ways that are compatible with climate stability. We're talking about reforms. We're talking about reforms that are essential at this moment in time. Reforms that are plausible in principle, possible in principle in the systems in which we live, but reforms that will only find legitimacy uh, if you uh, couple them with a transition away from neoliberalism. Now, for that, you do need a public policy uh, too. So you need public policy to generate and fund the new technologies that we need. We need public policy to regulate the transition away from the realities in which we live and towards a sustainable uh, future. We need public policy to uh, organize mass movements and channel them into specific policy changes that have to be coordinated by and within the state and that will push capital to accept in different countries and in different ways but uniformly around the globe to accept changes that will be imposed from outside and that are essential for uh, the survival of the human species. So we need um, urgently to address those uh, challenges. They can only be addressed through the power uh, of public policy. Now, we know the public policy is not perfect. States are not perfect states can be corrupt, states can be inefficient, states can be undemocratic, et cetera, et cetera. But it is possible in principle to use the mechanisms and the institutions of the state to achieve those goals. It is not possible, not possible to address those uh, challenges and to achieve those goals without public policy. So I'm not saying that this is a panacea, but it is an essential tool that we need to use 
in order to achieve a democratic future that responds to the wishes of the majority, starting with the wish to live, to survive uh, into the future, and um, that responds to the demands of the majority in terms of the distribution of the costs and benefits from the uh, green uh, transition that we have to embark into as rapidly as possible. In conclusion, your paper states that addressing climate change is difficult, not only for technical reasons or even because of ideological prejudices. The main constraints is the nature or the structure rather of the global economic system that is based on the ruthless abuse of nature, both for resources and as a sink for rejects from production and consumption. Furthermore, today's financialized societies are not merely unprepared to address the climate crisis, they have actively precipitated it, while at the same time they have dismantled the institutional structures that could contain the erosion of the existing conditions for life on earth. And in other words, neoliberal capitalism has exposed humans and other living species to dangers and risks that is unable either to contain or to address. Currently within the moment of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people have spoken of this time in history as a dress rehearsal um, for the climate crisis to which we are moving more and more into as we travel further and further within the 21st century. From your point, have there been any indications uh, from the way in which world leaders have approached this moment at the beginning of the pandemic and at this part of the pandemic now as vaccines become more and more uh, common? Have there been any indications that world leaders are ready to break from the orthodoxy that has led us to this point? I think the answer has to be very cautious and in general pessimistic. Most countries uh, have tried to resolve the problem of the pandemic uh, working on their own. And the European Union working on its own uh, in a slightly more coordinated uh, way. Some countries, United States, United Kingdom, European Union, India, China, have embarked into programs uh, connected with COVAX, the Global Vaccine Consortium, programs to donate uh, vaccines uh, to the developing areas of the world. But they have done that subordinate to the vaccination of their own peoples. So it's not the construction of equality around the world. The uh, advanced uh, countries, particularly uh, the UK, um, have resisted uh, enormously uh, the breaking of patents uh, on vaccines to allow vaccines, uh, effective vaccines to be produced more easily and more cheaply uh, anywhere uh, in the world. This is unforgivable, absolutely unforgivable. And the thought has been that people from outside, people from abroad, they don't vote, so they do not have to be listened to they do not have to be cared for, they do not have to be looked after as well as our own people. This is a mistake. Everyone knows, even in purely clinical terms, if you leave areas of the globe under vaccinated, new variants of um, the coronavirus will emerge and they may escape the vaccines that already uh, exist. It is an absolutely mistaken and suicidal policy to treat humans unequally in the middle of a pandemic. That does not set a good example for uh, the policies that will be needed to address climate change. Once again, for climate change, we need policies that build equality 
that recognize humanity wherever it is and that support the uh, green transition in every part uh, of the world on the basis of need. Resources must be transferred from the North to the South. The North has already extracted enough. It has extracted peoples, it has extracted wealth, it has extracted resources from the South. Now it must give them back in order to address initially in the short term, the coronavirus and the pandemic and uh, longer term, but very rapidly too, to address a climate change. Without this recognition of our common humanity, the struggle will be much more difficult. And there is a possibility, a distinct possibility that it will take so much longer that it will become impossible to contain uh, the rise in global temperatures and that it will become impossible to contain the catastrophe that is about to hit the earth, that we already feel hitting the earth, but will become exponentially worse as time passes and as we fail to address this existential challenge for humanity. So this is, uh, the pandemic should serve as an alert, but also as a plea to act in a coordinated way, to act in a selfless way, to act in a human way, uh, to act in a just way, to address the challenges that we have got ahead of us. If we fail to do this, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that there will be humans on earth by the end of this century. We're talking about generations that are already alive on this planet. It is absolutely urgent that we must address uh, climate change. So what the paper does is to give ideas about macroeconomic policies that can contribute to, the, to, to addressing uh, this challenge. They come up with different proposals, but let's talk about ways to get there. Let's not discuss if we need to get somewhere. We do, and we do need to do this right now. Thank you very much, Professor. I'll leave it on that note. Thank you for being here today, and uh, we thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Very, very nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us on the first episode of the Climate Justice Deal podcast. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be releasing new episodes every Friday. And for more information on the Climate Justice Charter, please visit www.cjcm.org.za. And you can find us on Twitter at CJ Charter SA.